And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely, for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, what a thing it is that we may have the word of God before us and we may hear the Lord Jesus Christ, our gracious and precious Lord, speak through it. We pray for this time of preaching, that uh, you would fill the minister's mouth with the words of God and that he would preach what is needed for the people of God here preaching to them as suited to them, as their under-shepherd. And we pray for the people of God gathered here, Lord. May you give them a great blessing of having the word of God give them comfort this night. And so we pray, Father, that for the glory of Christ, you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things that are found in thy law. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'll begin with a, a recap of what we had heard last week. Uh, that when Christ opened the Sermon on the Mount, this greatest sermon of them all, he opened it with eight Beatitudes. And he gave us the rule of divine blessing by giving us these eight Beatitudes of divine happiness and gave us a portrait of the citizens of the kingdom of God. Because he knows that the citizens of heaven, this side of heaven, do not necessarily feel blessed. They feel a poverty of spirit, they mourn, they're persecuted, and so on. You know, at the face of it, one would not consider themselves blessed if we didn't have a divine word that would say, no, in fact, you are blessed. You know, when we consider the citizens of the carnal kingdom all around us, as Asaph one did, once did, you might wonder why it is, as Paul said, we are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things. But Jesus Christ says there's a blessedness in that. He comes down from heaven as king of his kingdom and says, No, beloved, if this is you, you are in fact happy. You are blessed. Friends, nature, as we heard last time, could never reveal this blessedness to you. No philosopher could reveal it to you. No psychotherapist certainly is going to reveal this to you. Only Jesus Christ can and does by way of the Holy Scripture. He does this so that you may also recognize that you are truly blessed as a member of the citizen of heaven. You're a citizen of heaven, a member of the kingdom of God, and that you are not to shy away from these markers of the blessed man or blessed woman. In fact, you are to have, at various degrees, all eight of these characteristics, and you are to cultivate when we get especially to the, uh, the Beatitudes that must be cultivated. But even this one that we'll consider tonight has to be cultivated in us when we understand the kind of mourning 
that is in view here. We'll uh, say more on that a bit later. Uh, but uh, as a recap, children, so that you may remember, each of these Beatitudes has two parts. The first part tells you the character of the blessed man or woman, and the second part has the blessing. What is the blessing? What is the happiness of the one who is uh, in the kingdom of heaven? So, for instance, we considered last week, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So their character is what? That they are poor in spirit. Their blessing, their happiness is what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is how simple they are, but completely profound. And remember how fitting it was that that was the first beatitude, because this is the way to heaven. This poverty of spirit to say, uh, uh, Christian, that I have nothing good in me, that I am a beggar of grace. There is nothing in me that commends me to God. I must have Christ. I must have his righteousness imputed to me because I have absolutely nothing. I am like um, Lazarus who is begging at the rich man's table, hungry for a, a crumb to fall down. That's the poverty of spirit that leads you into the kingdom of heaven. So I seek after Christ, I look to him, and that's where I find the blessing. That's where I find the happiness. That as I receive the righteousness of Christ, I find heaven's gates are open and I am able to come to God. And that's my happiness, knowing that. So with that reminder and that recap, uh, tonight we pick up the second beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, What's the character of the blessed one? Children, you can pick this up easily. These are they that mourn. These are those that weep. What's their blessing? They shall be comforted. They shall have comfort. Uh, In a sense, then, isn't this a strange thought, children? Happy are those that weep. Um, maybe that's a strange thing to you. It's certainly a strange thing to the world. But one of the eight rules of happiness, of blessedness, involves weeping. But as you'll discover, it's not all weeping. It's a certain kind of weeping. Uh, weeping over the right and proper things. And the comfort, if the weeping is not an ordinary weeping, the comfort is no ordinary comfort either. It's the comfort of God himself. To ponder such things, then, is to hand all of our sorrows over to the Lord so that he would minister to us comfort. And that would be our happiness. So our theme tonight is, blessed are they that mourn, blessed are they that mourn, under two heads that reflect the pattern of the Beatitudes. First, the character. Second, the blessing. So first, the character. Blessed are they that mourn. Let's first recognize something. There's an absolute allergy in the Western church towards mourning. The mantra of the church, and you hear it all too often, is I should not be unhappy. I have a right, um, especially as a Christian, to not be unhappy. And that, I think, is reflected in the songs that we sing in public worship, uh, as well as a general attitude that refuses to be under the conviction of sin. I don't want to feel bad is sort of the mantra of the Western Church. And where do you find it in its extreme? Its logical conclusion, you take it all the way, is the health and wealth gospel, isn't it? Right, the prosperity gospel. And so there seems to be very little room in our churches for godly lament. In other words, people have come up with the notion, which you cannot find in the Bible, that God always wants me happy and never sad. Which is really strange if you've ever opened up the psalm book, of course. But even if you opened up Matthew chapter 5, and you come to the Sermon on the Mount, which, you know, every Christian 
says is something for the New Testament church. All the Bible is. We have this erroneous notion these days that only the New Testament is. But here it is in the New Testament in Christ's greatest sermon. We are to be sad, he says, if we are a member of the kingdom of God. This is the Savior himself. And you remember how the Savior himself was um, described in Isaiah 53, boys and girls. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows. And acquainted with what? Grief. And so Jesus says in the second beatitude, blessed are they that mourn. But the kind of mourning is important to understand. Not every kind of mourning is in view here. Uh, For instance, he doesn't mean worldly sorrow. We actually read 2 Corinthians 7 uh, for that purpose. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that the sorrow of the world worketh what? Death. So it's not all sorrow that is blessed. Uh, There is a kind of sorrow that works death, not blessing. What is the kind of mourning, you might ask, that works death? Well, you might consider the kind of mourning over sin, yes, but not properly so. For instance, you might mourn the consequences of your sin rather than your sin itself. Uh, You think of the drunkard, right, who loses his family because he's been a drunkard. And he might mourn the fact that now he has a divorce and now he doesn't see his children all the time but he doesn't mourn the fact that he sinned against God. And that's where the mourning uh, we find in a man like that is worldly sorrow, sorrow over consequences. You remember, children, Esau, of course, was quite sorrowful. He was quite bitter, but he never sought true repentance to God. Worldly sorrow over sin even wants to, at times when we sin, what does the sorrow, uh, what what sort of sorrow do we find? Um, Think about... The, the criminal, right, before the judge, uh, children, who's only sorrow when, sorrowful when he gets the sentence passed, but not before it. He is upset because now he's punished, but he was never upset that he hurt somebody or he robbed, and certainly not sorry that he sinned against God. So not all sorrow is the sorrow that is blessed here, but that does lead us to the kind of sorrow the Lord intends to teach on a kind of godly sorrow that leads to life. Again from 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly sorrow worketh what? Repentance to salvation not to be repented of. This is the blessed mourning that is part and parcel of our salvation. It's a mourning over our own sin. And this is, as it has been well said, a profoundly Christian sorrow. No one else knows it but the Christian. It's a sorrow everybody may mourn a death. Every body might mourn loss, but only the Christian will mourn their sin in the way that is godly. Not mourning sin because it's a consequence. Not mourning sin even because it may send them to hell. You might find that in other religions. But the Christian mourns profoundly their sin over all kinds of dimensions. It mourns, yes, the holiness of God has been violated or assaulted because I have sinned. The Christian knows their own depravity when they sin. I am so depraved that I would do such a thing. It doesn't just produce a terror of God's holiness. We mourn because we recognize that we are evil. And what we have done is evil. Even if there was no eternal punishment for sin, we would mourn that we have sinned. And we find ourselves loathsome before God. 
Brethren, this is profoundly important. We need to see ourselves as the perpetrators of sin and not the victims of it, which is too often the case. When we are born again, the seed of godliness that God implants in us is vehement against our own self because of what we have done. You know, that was the Apostle's point as we had heard it in 2 Corinthians 7. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. <coughs> this is what the Christian feels. And do you notice where it's pointed? It's not pointed at other men. It's not pointed at other people. It's not pointed at God, certainly. It's pointed at himself or herself. There's this kind of mourning over what I have done and this indignation against myself. To to look at what Paul's doing, it's like you're conducting an operation of revenge against yourself. Now, boys and girls, I've said this often, but I have to say it again. Even in the church, we hear the lie that people ought never feel bad about themselves. But our sin should make us grieve. It should make us grieve. That's very plain in the Bible. You see that in the Beatitudes here. You see that in 2 Corinthians 7. You see it in Psalm 51, Psalm 32, and on and on. The problem is that such do not recognize that feeling bad about yourself is actually the way to happiness and blessedness when we repent of our sin. And this species of godly mourning, it intensifies as we really understand sin. It ought to. When the Christian mourns what sin has done, as we read in Zechariah 12, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the mourning over our sin intensifies. You know, in Romans 8, 1, we rejoice in the truth that there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But it is always joy that is tinged with sadness, isn't it? Because what do we read later in Romans chapter 8, verse 32? That God spared not his son, his own son, but delivered him up for us all. The recognition of that, that the reason I am not condemned is because God condemned his son in my place. And when we think of not only that, but that the son is God in the flesh, all kinds of mourning occurs in the Christian. God crucified for me. The morning we read of in Zechariah 12.10 floods our soul. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me who's speaking. God is speaking. Look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. And shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. This is the kind of mourning that the Christian has over their sin. Again, it's not about consequences first and foremost. What my sin has done is it has crucified God in the flesh. And do you recognize the kind of mourning that Zechariah 12 says is to be in our soul? It's like the weeping of the loss of a firstborn child. Now, I I don't know who all has lost a child, and I'm very sorry if you have, but I think you can imagine, if you haven't, the kind of grief that comes upon somebody when they have lost a child. And what the Lord says is the firstborn, so you think about this, the first to open the womb, 
and you lose such a child as that, and what sort of intense grief there is in a family. This is the kind of grief that we are to feel that the Son of God, the firstborn of God, was crucified because of our sin. And somewhere in the heart of the Christian, a tremendous sobbing comes. Even if it's not shown externally, their heart is simply wounded over the thought that Christ was uh, wounded for me. They think on Christ's wounds, as we meditated on a few communions ago, and they start to weep because they are the ones who crucified the Savior. You ask, what have I done to my sweet Lord? I have crucified the Lord of glory. And we are cut to the heart, as Peter did uh, uh, preach such things. It almost ought to make us vomit to think of sin, the plague in our heart, and what it has done to the perfect um, Lamb of God. And this is what makes the Apostle cry out in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Right? You think of the wretchedness of our own soul, and we cry out to God. The moment that we believe that we are not to experience such grief in our life is when we will be robbed, actually, of the blessedness of this beatitude. And that's the thing that's counterintuitive, isn't it? We are to mourn our sinfulness and see that this is not a mourning without hope. Even as the apostle cried out in Romans 7, after he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? What does he say? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we'll find, and I'm getting ahead of myself, the promised comfort, the blessing always comes when we recognize uh, our sin and when we mourn and when we are sent to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the cure to the mourning over our sin. But as I said, I'm getting ahead of myself. But as you consider this second beatitude, I think it makes it plain to see that the first and second beatitudes form a kind of couplet. Um, they are complementary. In the first beatitude, you find your need for faith. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we recognize in ourselves a poverty of spirit, don't we? And we flee to Christ by faith. But in the second beatitude, we find our need for repentance, without which, as our standards say quite wisely, no man can expect to see the Lord. We mourn our sin over godly, uh, with a godly kind of sorrow, and we repent of it, turning from it unto Christ. And so you see, faith and repentance are closely coupled, repentance being the fruit of faith. Now that said, though there is a mourning over sin here that is primary in the Beatitude, there are, I, I don't want to neglect this, other spiritual reasons for mourning that do fall under this Beatitude. And we must recognize that they are proper to mourn. In fact, we ought to mourn, the Lord Jesus Christ says, over many things. Otherwise, and let's just mark this well, we would be out of tune spiritually if we never found things to mourn over. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, our, our religion is not, the, um, not stoicism, right? It's not that philosophy of buck up and uh, keep a stiff upper lip. Christ never says the way of happiness is through stoicism. Uh, kind of rugged individualism is often taught in our culture, but that's not what um, you find here in the Beatitude. Christ says, no, you mourn, and you mourn the proper things. And so while I cannot be exhaustive over all the areas of mourning, let's just recognize several areas of spiritual mourning. And let's start with the things that are perhaps most challenging to us. Uh, it is proper to mourn that others do not keep the law of God. 
All right, Psalm 119, 136. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. There is a godly mourning that comes when you recognize that men do not honor God. And that is right and that is proper. Uh, is there, when David has this, this wonderful psalm before us, Psalm 119, is there a kind of self-righteousness in that mourning? No, no, God forbid. There's no self-righteousness there. It stems from an understanding of sin. Just as it stems from an understanding of our own sin, that sin attacks the glory of God, but also as we are called to love neighbor, we recognize that sin is to the detriment of our neighbor as well. It attacks the glory of God and it's to uh, no one's good. As we'll hear in the Psalm of the Month this uh, week, the next week, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. There's a blessing to all men to walk in the law of the Lord and there's nothing but misery for those who keep not the law of God. So you think on these two aspects, right? The first commandment, the greatest commandment rather, and then the one like it, which is to love thy neighbor as thyself. Think about all the ways we ought to mourn. Should we not mourn that men despise Christ and worship false gods? We should. Should we not mourn that men do not worship him as he desires? Should we not mourn that men blaspheme his holy name and don't revere him? Should we not mourn that men desecrate his holy day and don't spend time honoring God? Should we not mourn that men do not honor their parents and do not care for their children? That governors don't give everything that is necessary, both uh, body and soul, for those under them? And that inferiors do not honor their superiors? We should. You just look at our nation. You know, so much of the breakdown is based on the fifth commandment. Should we not mourn that Men murder men made in God's image and that even children are murdered in the womb and that men and women will even murder their own offspring. Should we not mourn that men teach sexual perversion and divorce as virtues? Should we not mourn that usury, slothfulness, and debt are our nation's ethic? Should we not mourn that men lie and gossip one to another even in the church? Should we not mourn that we are often a covetous people? You know, if we had any spiritual sensibility, these things would cause us to mourn. And it's not something I'm making up. Psalm 119, 136, rivers of waters run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Friends, we grow. See, we grow in blessedness when we become more spiritually sensitive. And when we mourn, right, blessed are they that mourn. You become more spiritually sensitive to the things of God and what grieves the heart of the Lord. And you yourself are blessed in that. What a thing it is to be a man or woman after God's own heart in these ways. There are other godly reasons to weep. You can think about things like weeping over the state of the church. Are we so insensible to it? Heresies distressing her, the gospel silenced, not being preached, the Bible not treated as the word of God. God's word, God's psalms not being sung. sung. Denominationalism run uh, amok. We have petty party factions and fractured relationships even in the church of Jesus Christ. Again, I think if we were spiritually sensitive, we would mourn these things. What of lost souls that are perishing? Who among us has the sensibility of the Savior who wept over Jerusalem? Are we so insensitive to these things? Again, 
remember, blessed are they that mourn. What of those that suffer hard providences? Will we not mourn with those that mourn? Is that not the calling of the scripture? Are we insensitive to that as well? What of our brethren being beaten and persecuted? Are we so insensitive we will not weep for them? What of hard providences that come upon us that are not our own making, even when death comes to our own loved ones? You know, you remember children, Lazarus dies. What does Jesus do? He weeps, even though he knows the resurrection is to come. We are called to mourn, yet as, uh, not as those without hope. What of those that go astray? What of uh, our brethren who backslide or, or uh, shockingly apostatize? Should we not weep? How often is it that we are more angry than we are sad? And we ought to weep. We think of the man that we once counted a brother that was excommunicated last night. Should these things not cause us to mourn? What of covenant children not walking with the Lord? Should we not mourn over them? Are we so insensitive, beloved, that these things don't make us weep? You see, we have to check our hearts to see if there's a kind of spiritual callousness that has formed in these areas. But the Lord says, blessed are they that mourn. You have to ask, where are the Jeremiah's? Where are the David's? Where are the Paul's? Uh, where are the you know, men in Christ's heart who would weep over these things as these godly men have? You know, these are the things, as I alluded to earlier, that the Christian only and only the Christian weeps over. This is a distinguishing mark, as all these Beatitudes are, about the Christian. Uh, No unbeliever, no one untouched by the grace of God is going to mourn over these things. And so these are markers of your own, um, uh, for your own assurance, uh, and for your own growth in grace. You need to grow in these areas. You need to grow to mourn these things. And you will be closer to the Lord is what you will find. That is the blessing. Everyone, as I said, weeps in this life, but only the Christian weeps in these ways. So never ever look for a Christianity that does not have a godly lament as part of the Christian's journey this side of heaven. Never ever look for that. This side of heaven, you live in a valley of tears, and you must know that, you must embrace it, and you must believe that there is a blessing in that too. If not, you will be, and I will be too, utterly miserable. And how many miserable Christians there are. You know, we are so spoiled and we are so out of sorts that we can open our Bibles and look at the apostles and the first uh, wave of disciples and see them constantly mourning, constantly lamenting. Some of them suffered the loss of brethren daily. Many were cast into exile, as we saw John was in the series on the Revelation. Many were persecuted and beaten. Many were cast out of their families. Their own families disowned them because they loved Christ. How many of you want that kind of Christianity? How many of you reject it? But that's the calling of the Lord. And you will find so many spoiled and pampered Christians who get a little bit of grief in their life and they just throw their hands up. But blessed are they that mourn. So let's consider that blessedness in the next heading. Now this would not be a beatitude if a blessing was not associated with our mourning. 
The blessed promises, for they shall be comforted. Here is your happiness. Comfort shall come, beloved, if you mourn with godly sorrow. Now there's no word shall in the original Greek, uh, because the Greek language is, is richer in a lot of ways. The word for comfort is an indicative verb, meaning that you shall have comfort. doesn't need the word shall there in the Greek. So the word for comfort basically uh, is an indicative saying you will have this. You will have comfort. If you mourn, you will have comfort. And so this is a strong pledge from Christ, and it is a strong promise. A promise to be remembered and a promise to be pleaded in prayer when you mourn in a godly way. And if you take in the rest of Scripture and how this would be a theme that we could unfold, you know, till midnight, but you will find that this is the strongest possible comfort of all. There is no comfort like the comfort that the the Bible promises the believer because the comfort is not from um, a mere human. The comfort is not from a mere possession. The comfort is God himself. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Now we've opened that text before, but I think it's a good reminder. God is not the God of some comfort, is he? He is the God of all comfort. All comfort. All the comfort you need, beloved, is in him. All of it. All of it is in him. You know, very interesting. As I was just, actually, as I opened this text again, it struck me as I considered the text of 2 Corinthians 1. You know, often our first place to go for comfort are other people. We often want to go to other people. But the Bible teaches us that our comfort is in God. And in our text here, in 2 Corinthians 1 rather, even when the horizontal comfort is spoken of, it's not spoken of in these terms, go find comfort in others. It's actually flipped around, you go comfort others. Meaning that your directive is to seek God for comfort, and God may send others to comfort you. But you reverse the order, and you will find no comfort at all. And there are a lot of people trying to find comfort in people, rather than God, who remain comfortless. And they will remain that way for years and years until they find this truth, right? Our directive, though, as the people of God, is to go and comfort others. However, when we go to look for comfort, we don't look for it in others. He sends others to us. And that's a key point, and it's a very vital distinction, because if you chase the secondary thing, you will never gain what you're looking for. But when you seek the Lord for comfort, and some of you in this room have have experienced that, how he surrounds you. He surrounds you with his people when you put him first, and you say, God, all my comfort is in thee. And then he may use instruments like that. But you certainly will be filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in fact, this idea of God being our comfort is so pervasive in the scripture that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit himself, is called what? The comforter. Right? God himself gives himself to us. When, G- when the disciples were, were so perplexed, 
when Christ said, I am going away, he says to them to comfort them. I will not leave you orphans. I will send the comforter who will come and comfort you. God himself is our comfort and fills us. He doesn't even say, right, like there will be a a massive church and you will have plenty of fellowship. He says, no, the Holy Spirit will come and the Holy Spirit will give you comfort. I will not leave you comfortless. You know, what better comforter is there than God? You know, remember Job, right? His three friends come, they're okay for a time. But after that, what does the man say? Miserable comforters are ye all. No man can give you what God only can give you. But as our text primarily deals with mourning over sin and repentance, let us also not forget that repentance is not a bad word. Erase the notion that repentance is bad for your self-image. You're going to hear this all the time. Um, That thought has its roots in our flesh, it's inflamed by Satan, and it's taught by the world with all the self-esteem gurus. No, friends, you never forget sin is terrible. That I sinned is awful, it is to be despised, but never repentance. Repentance is never to be despised. Repentance, the Bible says, is a gift. And it's also framed in this way, a gift to comfort us, which we often forget. It will be to your own comfort to remember that repentance is the gift of God or the grace of God. If I am moved to repent, what is that? That's God's graciousness in me. Sin is my wickedness, but repentance is God's graciousness. You know, when the Jews saw Gentiles repent when Christ was preached, they marveled. Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Acts eleven eighteen. A, a grant, children, is a gift, isn't it? We talk about grants all the time. Uh, a grant is a gift. And who could ever forget, and, and I think the sad thing is we do forget, how Christ frames repentance in the parable of the prodigal son. You know, the, par- the prodigal who's weary of sin, mourns over it, trudges back home, his eyes are downcast, thinking and saying what? Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. What does the father who in Christ's parable stands in for God the Father do? But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. You know, even before the words come out of our mouth, our own motions of repentance, when repentance is in our heart, you can almost take that text and say we receive kisses from God. We receive his embrace as we return to him. We turn away from our sin, we turn to him, and we purpose after new obedience. And even before our words of repentance may come out of our mouth in prayer, the Lord is kissing us and embracing us. And we are comforted. You know, in a single word, you can summarize God's action when we repent, which is comfort. He comforts us. The comfort that we are forgiven fully and freely. You know, the prodigal, he never even had a chance to grovel, really. The father meets him. How glorious is repentance. You know, the devil wants to rob you of this comfort from God, friends. Don't let him do it. You know, I think your comfort also grows when you recognize that the Lord himself rejoices 
over your repentance, doesn't he? That's an astonishing thing, isn't it? And you ask, why is that? Why is it that repentance causes God, uh, the heart of the Lord, to rejoice? Well, it's because in that parable he says that our repentance is tied to our well-being. And he has an interest in that, doesn't he? Right? We are the children of God, and he has an interest in our well-being. The father in the parable said why he rejoiced. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. See, the father cares about us. And the father knows that sin is not in our best interest, and it destroys us. And so when we repent of our sin, uh, there is joy in heaven over that. There is joy in heaven. And so we see the comfort that comes in that. You know, that sorrow leads to joy and blessedness is found. Godly sorrow over sin leads to joy and blessedness is everywhere in the scripture. 51st Psalm, we'll sing it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. The 34th Psalm, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. What's the comfort there? The Lord is close by to you. God himself, the God of all comfort. These things are in every portion of Scripture. You know, even when John the Baptist's ministry of repentance was prophesied in Isaiah 40, what was the command given to the baptizer? Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably, or comfort, to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That is how his ministry was framed. A ministry of comfort because he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Truly blessed are they that mourn over their sin for they shall be comforted. And you will find, and because of time we can't go through all of this, but for every godly species of grief, the Lord has a comfort for you in the word. Now when death comes even to the midst of Christians, I think because we know this text, I'll use it. So often we are told to mourn, but what? Not mourn as those without hope, right? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we are to look to the resurrection day, aren't we? But I think in all of our mourning, I think there is a great comfort in the remembrance that the Savior himself mourned in his life on the earth. He lamented Lazarus' death, He lamented over Jerusalem. He lamented that his own familiar friend turned up his heel against him. He lamented that his own disciples abandoned him. He lamented with God in Gethsemane to think on drinking of the cup of God's wrath. And he moaned and groaned on the cross itself. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. What is the comfort in knowing that? Does anyone know? If he's acquainted with grief, he's acquainted with every godly species of grief. And he is sympathetic, isn't he? Hebrews 4.15. Do you think that your Lord is unaware that your life under heaven, this present life, is anything but sorrow in many ways? He is well acquainted with griefs that you could never know and will never know if you're a Christian. Could you imagine that grief of being Um, under the wrath of God 
for that time on the cross. A grief you will never taste, but he tasted for you, Christ, uh, Christian. You know, if he knows that your heart is going to be full of sorrow and he has faced it himself, your tear-streaked face, your bruised heart finds a dear place at his throne, doesn't it? And he comforts you. And 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, it is so that you may be also able to comfort them which are in any trouble. And so yes, we use this beatitude to give the comfort God has given us to others. And uh, you know, you might ask, when will the comfort come? Well, even if you feel comfortless presently, the promise of Christ, and he is no liar, is that it shall come. As we sing, weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning, Psalm 30, verse 5. And the night might seem to last a very long time, but the dawn will come, is the promise. Even the entirety of your life is called, what? A vapor. It's like a breeze, children. You know, you might not think that now, you're very young, but it won't be very long, God willing, you'll be my age, and then you'll find that uh, eternity is not so far away from you. Your life is but a vapor, it's but a breeze. And even if your sorrows aren't taken away in this life, what is your 70, 80 years compared to the eternity that is before you? All right? You shall be comforted. That's the promise. Every believer knows for sure comfort is given in due time. Revelation 21. God himself shall be with them and be their God. There is the primary comfort, isn't it? But what's the secondary? And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you see it here at the end of the book. You must believe it, brethren, and you must even, and I must too, be okay with mourning for a very long time. You'll never stop mourning your sin. Uh, The apostle who went farther than any in this room will ever go still said, wretched man that I am. And he would be a wretched man until he got that uh, victory in glory that Christ promised him, where he removed the sin nature once and for all. So that there is no more mourning, there is no more tears over our sinfulness in heaven. But God will give you comfort in due time, and often it is in this life. I don't want to push everything away. And maybe it is going to be through a text like this. Certainly in the Word of God, you will find much comfort. Maybe it'll be in this sermon tonight. I don't know. It will come, though. God is no liar. He has promised it. And if you are outside of Christ, I do want to address you. If you've never called on him in faith and in repentance, if he has sent you a conviction of sin, that's his work. And if you start mourning just how awful you are, embrace it. Embrace it. Because that's the way to blessedness. Repent of your sin and have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have the happiness that transcends any happiness you can know by pretending you are not a sinner. All is not well, friend. All is well only when you receive God's comfort of forgiveness in Christ. You know, Jesus Christ, whether you're an unbeliever today or a believer, I think what is wonderful about his promised ministry is that it was to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, 
the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. This is what we have in Christ. He has taken away all of our mourning ultimately. He says to you, unbeliever, exchange your mourning for oil of joy. It costs you nothing. Simply believe on the Lord and have it. Well, brethren, one last thing. This beatitude, children, it's so easy to memorize, isn't it? So easy. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Keep it close to your heart when you weep in a godly manner. God will bring it to your remembrance. You need it. And the God of all comfort will comfort you. He has promised to do it, so endure with that promise, knowing that he will wipe away every tear one day. Amen. Well, let us now go to the Lord in praise. Psalm 51. As I had mentioned in the sermon, we will uh, sing verses 15 through 19. My closed lips, O Lord, by thee, let them be open. Then shall thy praises by my mouth abroad be published. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it thee. Nor wilt thou with burnt offering at all delighted be. A broken spirit is to God a pleasing sacrifice. A broken and a contrite heart, Lord, thou wilt not despise. So show kindness and do good, O Lord, to Sion thine own hill. The walls of thy Jerusalem build up thy good will. Then righteous offerings shall thee please, and offerings burnt which they, with whole burnt offerings and with cows, shall on thine altar lay. Let us sing these verses, Psalm 51, 15 to 19, Kilmarnock is the tune. La, 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 la.
righteous offering shall be pleased, and offerings burnt which they with whole burnt offerings and with.